morning, everyone. I want to welcome everyone again to our online service and trust that our time together will be a blessing and honor to God and uh, encouragement and benefit to us as we fellowship together. Um, before I begin my sermon this morning, I'd like to make a few comments about some things that I feel, first a word of appreciation, and then a comment about some developments in our community. First word of appreciation to all of our people who are continuing to meet online and in various ways. Just a big thank you to staying faithful and to holding on in spite of uh, the difficulties that we face and that we are still in lockdown, so to speak. We can't fellowship together as a church. We are grateful for all the things that are happening, even though it is not the ideal. Um, also, a big thank you to all the people who are still making it a priority to support and donate to the church um, and to just keep things moving forward. Um, just want to make a comment again about Rebel Give. And if you see the icon on your screen. That's a fairly simple way to give. And if you want to donate and you're new, then just make yourself um, make use of that. It's available to you as you want to use it. Also, again, I want to just say thank you to all the uh, online ministries that many of you are participating in, whether it's junior youth, senior youth, or young adults, or women's Bible study. These are very important ministries, and they are there for the benefit of the church, for the people to have something by which to which connect, and so on. I do want to say a few thoughts, a few things also about what's been going on in the community at large. Recently, a few weeks ago, I was made aware of a letter that is, was circulating, uh, put out by a church from Windsor, Windsor. And in this letter, there was a request that was put out for um, churches to sign, requesting permission from the interior government that we could again meet in churches. And it was well written, outlining how we were willing to use social distancing. We were willing to operate at a reduced capacity, let's say 40% or less of our capacity. Um, using all kinds of safety measures to protect and make sure that everyone stayed safe while we would be fellowshipping. There was only a day time to sign it and hand it in. That was my assumption when I first read it, and so I didn't sign it. But then the following week, several people from our church forwarded it to me, indicating that maybe we should sign this. And so I thought, well, the best I could do would be send it to council, and council would then make a decision, and then we would go from there. And then I did, and all of council basically, or at least... I got the majority vote was that we would sign it. So I signed it and then sent it off. And together, I think roughly 400 signatures got onto that letter and it was forwarded to the interior government. Um, interestingly, this last week, Thursday, that whole group uh, was invited to an online Zoom get together. And I was part of that meeting or that get together. Hundred of us got together on Zoom and we listened to a few individuals, two pastors and a few legal experts talk about what some options and some, some avenues were that we as pastors should pursue or could look at in terms of maybe hastening this process where the Ontario government would speed up the process through which we eventually will be able again to meet as churches. Uh, various options were, were given, I won't outline them here, but suffice it to say that there's a very, very good reason why this needs to happen sooner than later and they explain some, I'll just mention a few here. One is, for instance, the incredible need in our community for actual getting together. Maybe not physically hugging and handshaking, but we need that interaction. And um, for instance, the, uh, one of the comments was made, and, and I'll just say it the way they said it. Uh, someone said, uh, the suicide lines are ringing off the hooks. Um, 
I'm not, I'm not saying it's everywhere that way, but in some areas it's very severe. Um, the emotional breakdown of people's lives where they need help and emotional crisis workers going in, into overtime and doing extra shift work. I've heard of that and from different sources. And uh, the homes, uh, people living in, in dire situations, having lost their jobs, lost their incomes, then social lockdown, it's just too much. They need help. And this is where a place where churches have opportunities to speak into these, these situations and not being able to fellowship, not being able to have gatherings, we're only allowed five people at a time, that really, really puts a limit on what churches can do. The very essence, the very purpose for the existence of the church has been just pulled right out from underneath of it. And we're not blaming the government. We know they did it with good intent. We know we respect that. We, we acknowledge that. And that was mentioned here as well. At the same time, we need to find ways where we can accommodate the need for getting together and having worship services, which our parishioners so much need and so much want. So that was brought out. And then also um, the encouragement to write letters to our MPs. And this is not about civil disobedience or rebelling. This is about letting our voice be heard, sharing our needs and our concerns. And the more we do that, the better chance that this will be uh, get to the front burner, so to speak, will become a priority and avenues and ways will be found in which this can be facilitated. For instance, in Manitoba, I heard this week, 25 people can now gather, which is a great thing. Uh, I heard in Alberta, 50 people can now gather. So if we had some of those avenues available to us, that would be a great, great blessing. And so I would just encourage you as a member of the church, write a letter to Rick Nichols, and you can Google him. He's a, Terry Par um, he's a provincial par um, MP. Uh, write to Dave Epp, he's a federal MP. These guys, they have <clears throat> a voice. They bring our voice to the government. And so if enough of us speak up, enough pastors and enough church members speak up and should share, these are our needs. What can you do? How can we facilitate this? What can we do? I think it will help. And so did these pastors as well. And so we just want to um, um, do our best. Um, so we as council, um, we believe that it was in our best interest to sign the letter, so I did. And I also want to just encourage you as members of the church, do not take this lightly. Um, the one thing I will say is this, doing nothing is not good. Doing nothing is not optional. If enough people do nothing, then nothing gets done. And so we need to be active and just saying, oh, we'll pray about it. It's good, we should pray and we do pray and we need to continue to pray. But just saying that that's not enough. We need to also roll up our sleeves, find solutions, find ways in which we can remedy the needs that we have. Because if we don't, it's only going to get to a very critical point at some point where we'll wonder why didn't we do something sooner, or at least try to do something sooner. So my encouragement to all of us as churches, let's keep praying for sure. But let's also let our voice be heard and find ways, be creative, how we can facilitate some way to f start this process again where we can come back to what we had before, where we can meet and worship together, pray together, encourage one another, and do events and things together. So with that said, I would like us to... Um, I want to go to our sermon, but before I begin my sermon, I would just like us to bow our heads and we want to pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given to us to worship and honor you. You command us to worship you, and you've never made that a conditional command, that we should do more of it less or less of it at different times. It's fairly easy to be happy, Lord, and excited when things are good and easy and secure and predictable. But when things turn bad and our hearts are un unsettled, we begin to fear and we begin to wonder, where are you? As if somehow you got lost and we need to find you again. 
But honestly, we need you equally much at all times. There never is a time when we need less of you and times when we need more. We just sometimes forget how much we need you all the time. So Lord, we pray for ourselves that we will be agents of grace in the dying world as you call us to. Help us, Lord, to be a message of peace and hope and joy to a world that's falling apart. The world around us is full of bad news, but you bring good news and help us to bring that good news to people around us. The good news that through repentance and faith in you, we can have eternal life. Or today our prayer is that your people, we as your people would walk and trust you, trust in, holy, trust in your, your grace for us and walk in holiness with you and live in relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to keep you before us, keep you centered in our minds. You are our faith. You're the perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Lord, for your promises that you provide for our needs and that you love us. May we be faithful as we continue the journey of life in a dying world, in a dying culture. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. As we look at your word today, we ask you to fill us with your spirit and with your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've titled my sermon this morning simply, The Joy of a Relationship with God. If joy had a taste, what do you think it would taste like? If love was an image, what kind of image do you think it would be? If peace was a flower, what kind of flower would you compare it to? God made us in his image, was what the Bible says. I just want us to pause for a moment and just let that sink in. You didn't make yourself. God made you, and for a different reason than the culture tells you. I want to say at the outset that a person is never more content, more joyful, more at peace than when that person does the very thing for which God created that person. In a world that's fast losing its way, that's fast falling apart, where confusion seems to have taken center stage, where fear seems to have more traction than love, it's important for us to reorient our minds and hearts after God. Let me use an illustration that's very common, perhaps, something we use all the time that, that would fit this. For instance, I have a pen here, a pencil. What can I use this pencil for? I can use it to write my name. I can use, it even has an eraser, I can erase mistakes with it. But one thing I cannot do with it, I cannot use it as a knife. It doesn't work. I cannot cut anything with it. I can only write with it. It has a purpose, but the only purpose for this thing is to write, and that's it. Now, what if I try to use it for something else? I'll ruin it, I'll destroy it, and it's good for nothing. There's in my heart a sense that that is what the world is trying to do with humanity. Trying to use humanity for something which God never created humanity for. The world is trying to use humanity to focus in on itself. We were never created for that. And if we try that, it will not work. It will ruin us, it will rob us. Life for humanity started in a garden, the Garden of Eden, a place of perfection and peace and joy. Now it has become a desert, dry, empty, hot, dusty, and lonely. Instead of peace and security, there's emptiness, there's danger, there's dread, and there's fear. Instead of hope and confidence and trust, this world has become a place of despair and confusion. But God is not content with that. God has done something about that. And even though this world is not doing God's will at this time, God has intervened. 
He has made that connection with humanity through Jesus Christ when he sent his son Jesus to be born to as a virgin to, to grow and to teach and then to give his life as a ransom for the sins of the world. And we become God's children when we accept that gift of grace, when we repent of our sins and become his children. In the life of God's children, even, the world, even though the world is doing so badly, God's people can still and should have joy in their relationship with him. There's a writer in the Bible who experienced what it meant to be both in a difficult and dark time and then to experience the setting free from the chains of oppression and fear. And that is the message that we need to hear today. So in Psalm 40, verse 1 to 4, there's a rehearsal of what God has done in response to this man's patience and prayer. And let's just read verse 1. The psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. This is a relational statement. The psalmist is recording what happened. He was in need of help. He waited patiently and God turned to him and heard his cry. There's a trust issue involved here. Notice what his object of trust was. His object of trust was God. And it's important for us to notice that God is the one we start with. He's not our second or third or final choice. We go to God first. When life gets bad all the time actually not when life gets bad but all the time but oftentimes we wait till life gets bad well the only thing left to do is pray i've heard people say that well no that's what we start with when we leave god out no wonder life doesn't work it says here he waited patiently as we all know we've been forced into a holding pattern of sorts in our lives today but in general and a me first right now culture patience is not popular we want things now. And I'm not here by saying that I'm comparing patience to let's just do nothing. But that's not, that's not patience at all. Patience is when we keep on persistently with determination and trust doing what we know is right. Continuing to plead with God, continuing to relate to God, to pray to God, and then acting obedience to what we know is right without seeing results. We don't give up. Oh, we've tried, doesn't work, so we give up. It says he waited patiently. He entrusted God. He came to God. He trusted God, prayed to God. He cried to God. And then one time, God heard his cry. And, but God was not just hearing. God was actually doing. Let's continue reading. It says here in verse 2, it says, He lifted me out of the pit of despair and out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a solid ground. And steadied me as I walked along. He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. The response of God to the psalmist's cry resulted in the psalmist experiencing the blessing of God. Notice especially the verbs in this passage, the action words. Note what God did and what God's actions then did for him. He's lifted, he's set, he's walking, he's been given. All, all these action words, it's a very active thing that God did here. And then again, the results of that, they again are outgrowths of the product of the, the wider results that they produce in response to that. Let's read the next verse. It says here, Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud 
or in those who worship idols. You see what's happening here? As he's waiting on the Lord, as he's obediently and patiently doing the right thing, trusting God will hear, God hears, God responds, God gives, God sets him up, God he walks with him, he walks with God. And then the results of that are that there's an outgrowth. Many will see, it says. And they'll be amazed. They'll put their trust in God. It's a, it's a contagious thing. It spreads. It expands. People are in amazement at what happens. And then the writer goes to prayer in verse 5. It says, O Lord my God, you have performed many wonders for us. What I find interesting and what I find amazing here is that it goes kind of circular. He's trusting, he's waiting, he's doing what is right. God is responding, God is, is doing stuff. God is making, is improving his life. God's changing his life. People are seeing, there's amazement, there's wonder, there's growth. And then he goes back to God. That's how relationships work. And there's joy when that happens. A relationship that is a joyful relationship is a reciprocating relationship. It goes back and forth, back and forth. From, from person to person. And so now he's responding to God again, O Lord my God, you have performed many wonders for us. He's realizing, recognizing, and honoring God for what's been happening. It's a circular thing, the back and forth. Let's read on, it says, your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. I'm just curious a little bit. What's your life like? Are you someone who can just take perhaps a flower and just look at it and be amazed and wonderment what's happening, what God did, the intricacies of the leaves, the petals of the beautiful flower itself? It's an amazing creation. Or for instance, um, maybe a bird. We have a bird feeder now. Um, outside our window, never had one before. And the beautiful birds have come there. I can just sit there and watch them endlessly. And always in amazement at how God created the birds. And you know what the Bible says, Jesus says that not even one of these little birds falls to the ground without the Father knowing about it. Every one of them is accounted for. God's an amazing God, amazing God. It says that God's plans are too numerous to count, to, to recite. There, there's no end. He said, I would never come to the end of them. You know what oftentimes happens? We don't even get to the beginning of them because we're too occupied with ourselves. Think about the beauty that God has created. Not just flowers and birds, but then think about the human body, our minds, our, how fearfully and how wonderfully we are made. It's an amazing thing that God has done. We would never come to the end of it if we tried. But then he focuses a little bit again on himself. He's looked at what God is doing, what God is like, the creation God has made, and the wonders God has done. And then he says this, he says, You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I find and understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Oh, now that you've made me listen. Wasn't he listening before? 
You see, sometimes we come to this realization in life that we think we've got a good grasp. We think we have, we've somehow made it to a certain point in life, only to realize there's a whole new level. There's a whole new universe to understand. You see, I didn't have a lot of school as a young boy. I didn't get an opportunity, and I didn't really know that I was not getting an opportunity. And so I had grade four, and that was the end of it. But I had learned how to add, to subtract, to multiply, to divide. I knew math. I thought I did. And, and I knew it. Until later in life, after I got married, I had this great idea that I wanted to get some upgrading. I wanted to get my grade 12 yet. I was married, had a child, and my wife and I figured, yeah, I should do this. So I tried. But little did I know but how much there was to know about math. And as I went into all kinds of math, algebra and, and trigonometry and what have you, high school kids know about that. I was just blown away what there's to know about math. And then I just really knew that I didn't really know. And I think that's a little bit what the psalmist experienced when he got close to God. You see, once our relationship with God starts taking hold, once it starts getting active, it becomes a self-generating thing. I shouldn't say self-generating because God is doing the generating, but that's when, when, when there's traction, that's when there's momentum. And that's when things start to maybe generate energy. And there's, there's a desire, a thirst, a hunger for more of God. It's not like, okay, I've had enough now, so I want to do something else. No, it becomes a perpetual, increasingly, I want more, I want more thing. Now that, I've, now that you've made me listen, he says, you don't take delight in sacrifices and offerings. You see, God doesn't need our stuff. We may bring it to God because we feel responsible or we feel we should do it. And it's because of us, not because of him. He owns the universe. He owns this world. He owns you. He owns me. He owns everything. You and I can't give him anything that's not already his, his to begin with. Because you take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. He says, I finally understand. I wonder if you and I perhaps need to get to that point where we finally understand. At least I sometimes do. And then he goes on to write in verse 7, he says, Then I said, look, I have come. As is written about me in the scriptures, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I don't claim to fully know what this passage means. There's various interpretations that could be applied to this, and different commentators might give different uh, applications here. But one thing I will say is this. Here, the relationship between God and the writer, the psalmist, takes on a deeper nature. He sees himself integrated as part of God's plan. That is huge. The writer finds joy in doing the will of his God. It's not fear-based. It's joy-based. There's a huge difference. In essence, his existence, his whole purpose for being is not himself anymore. It's God, and he recognizes it. His God's instructions are written on his heart. A word picture that comes to my mind is, oh, most of us have cell phones, these little uh, smartphones. You have apps on these phones. And the phone becomes what the app is doing. For instance, when I have the app for the flashlight on, then my phone is a flashlight. And when I have the app for word processing on, the word processor app, then it's, it's a little word processor. When I have the app on where I make a phone call, then it's a telephone. When I open the music app, it becomes an entertainment piece. We are what God says we are. If God writes on my heart, 
property of God, then God's property. What God writes on my heart, that is what I am. That is my identity. That is who I am. And we need to pay attention to that. We need to remember and tell ourselves that we are not what culture says we are. We are not what society says we are. We are not what some people ridicule us for and say, oh, you're just, you're just. No, we're not. We're God's masterpiece. When we're given the opportunity to open ourselves to God, to allow Him to write on our hearts what His will is, that's a very close thing to do. In verse 9 it says, I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out as you, O Lord, well know. I've not kept the good news of your justice hidden in my heart. I've talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I've told everyone in the great assembly of your unfailing love and faithfulness. He's kind of giving a bit of an activity report here before God. What he's been up to. What he's been doing. I really like the way he details his activities, what they've been. He's shared with people about God's justice. He's not been afraid of that. He's not, he's not kept the good news quiet. He's talked about God's faithfulness and God's saving power. He's been preaching to everyone. This is the report of a man who's excited about the purpose of his being, the purpose of what he's called to do. He looked at his ministry as opportunity, as privilege, as part of something that he excitedly engaged in. Just when we might be tempted to start saying things like, I wish I was like that psalmist. No. We are part of that same picture, part of that same mosaic, part of that same painting, God's images on this portrait of life. He was human, the psalmist was human, we are human. He had life given to him by God, we do too. Let's read on. He's not, he's not this, uh, this guy who has it all together yet. He's still growing. Let's read. It says in verse 11, Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles surround me, too many to count. My sins pile up so high I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I've lost all courage. Wow. Wasn't this the guy who just talked about how he was connecting with God, relating with God, the reciprocating relationship he had? Isn't this the same guy? Yes, it is. Then why this? I think this is a beautiful picture of how God deals with his saints in a broken, sinful world where our heart is oriented toward God, but not arrived yet. You ever feel like that? Begging God to not hold back his mercies? Asking God to protect you in his unfailing love? The psalmist was there. He did that too. He describes his predicament. He's surrounded by his sins. He said, my sins pile up so high I can't see my way out. Does that ring a bell? Do you ever feel like that? Oh, let, let me tell you something. I'm far more concerned, and I would say far deeper concerned, or worried, I would say, with people who pat themselves on the back, you know, I've, I've made it, I've arrived, I've got this. I meet those people. Once in a while, there's a guy who will literally kind of pat himself on the back, so to speak, verbally, and you know, I'm, I'm a good guy. And I meet, once in a while, I meet a guy like that. They scare me. And once in a while, and maybe more often than not, I meet a guy who's really struggling. They're fighting. They're, they're, they're not getting there. They're fighting and they're struggling and they're fighting. You know what? That doesn't worry me. Those are the guys I have hope for. 
Those are the guys who see their desperation, who see their need for grace, who see their need for mercy. They want it. They thirst for it. They're hungry. They know they're in a dry desert land. They know they haven't arrived yet. They're not drunk with pride and power. They're hungry for love and for grace and for mercy. And God will eventually supply that. And as they patiently continue seeking and searching, their, their heart's desire will be rewarded. But the psalmist goes deeper. He has a bit of an attitude here, it seems. Anyway, let me read on. It says, please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. So he's begging, he's asking. But then he goes further. This is where it gets a bit of a, a bit, bit dicey. He says in verse 14, may those who try to destroy me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame for they said, aha, we got him. We got him now. I'm not quite sure what to make of this passage, I'll be honest. I struggle a little bit with it. But what we do find is honesty. And that's important. And so in essence, he's saying that all falsehood, all evil, he wants it exposed. He wants it done away with. He wants it moved back. He's praying that evil will not prevail. Those who engage in it will not succeed. He prays against evil. He wants God to deal with justice and truth, that evil will be brought to shame. And I think that's a good thing. But let's continue reading on verse 16. It says here, verse 16, But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, The Lord is great. As for me, since I am poor and needy, let the Lord keep me in his thoughts. You are my helper and my savior. Oh my God, do not delay. He directs his thoughts again toward God. Remember before I talked about the circular relationship here, the reciprocating back and forth. Here we go again back to his desire to connect with God. Let me use this illustration to bring a bit more clarity to this. What would you think if you got up in the morning to get ready for the day, you go into the bathroom, you look in the mirror, and what do you expect to see? A reflection of you. That's what you expect to see. But then, instead of seeing a reflection of you, you see a reflection of something totally different. Maybe you would see a reflection of the mirror. You see the picture of your mirror in the mirror. You would say, well, that's odd. That's not what this thing is designed for. This thing is not supposed to reflect itself. This thing is supposed to reflect me. Why is it looking... Why, why do I see a picture of a mirror in my mirror? It makes no sense. You'd be amazed, you'd wonder. And no matter what you did, you, you wouldn't be able to fix it. This mirror is a faulty mirror. It just shows a picture of itself, it's all it's doing. You'd say, I bought this mirror and it doesn't work. It's supposed to reflect me, not itself. You see, that's exactly, however, that's exactly what is happening in this world. People are created to reflect God, but it's easy to reflect self. Satan tells us we're important. And in God's eyes, we're important enough that he wants us, he died for us, but no, you are, you are the most important thing. You deserve worship. You deserve self-focus. You deserve this, you deserve that. And God says, no, I didn't make you for that. I made you to reflect me, and in reflecting me, you'll find joy and happiness. You'll find peace and contentment. But the psalmist had it right. He glorified God. He gave recognition to God, his greatness. And in this psalm, he's, as he closes the psalm, he says, I am poor and needy. He did talk about all the joy he just had, all the joy and the, 
the uh, relationship with God. He just talked about that. Now he says, I'm poor and needy. You know, I think that rings a bell. You and I are poor and needy. We need to keep our thoughts and our minds on Jesus Christ and recognize who we are in Him. Let me bring this to a close. One thing the psalm realized, it was never once about Him. It was always about God. And when he realized that, then he was in line, he was in sync, he was in tune, so to speak. And then God saw him through, and God, God answered his prayer, and God, God lined him up with his purpose, and then it worked. Once he lined up with God, everything somehow made sense, everything worked. How do you apply this to us today? I'll close with a story. Last year in June, we had a ministry here called Solitary Refinement, or Voice of the Martyrs, and they did a production here called Solitary Refinement. It was, a, it was wonderfully performed, and, and I really enjoyed it. And they told the story of Richard Wormbrandt, how he suffered in Romania back in the days of the um, communist government, the uh, Soviet Union, and so on. It was very, very difficult. Uh, Richard Wormbrandt was a preacher of the gospel, preaching the gospel. He got thrown in jail for that, and was severely tortured and was threatened with death numerous times and faced horrendous persecution. But he never lost his relationship with Jesus. He, he, he kept that intact. And, and last year's production of the Solitary Refinement, that came through again and again. And, and, and the story was not new to me. I had read that book many years ago called uh, Tortured for His Faith. Um, the story of Richard Wormer, I don't even remember the exact title of the book now, but it's a fascinating story. There's one part of the story where He's in prison, he's been tortured for, I don't know how long, just severely tortured, and he expects to die. And so they take him out of the prison cell, and he knows this is the end. And they lead him to some place, and if I remember correctly, I read this so many years ago, there's this blood-spattered wall where bullets smashing through people's skulls and bodies have splattered the wall, and he sees that, and, uh, and it's his turn is next. He's not going to die. And he's just praying inwardly. And he's rejoicing that his time has come. Now, finally, he's going to see face to face this God, this Savior who he's given so much for, who he has given his life to, his security, his comfort, his wife, his children, his future, everything he's given for this. And he's ready to die. He's waiting. That gunshot, which he probably wouldn't hear, but... That gunshot, and it'll be over, and he's going to be in paradise. And then they do something. I forget what they do. Do they make some noise? And then he realizes, it just hits him. They're not going to kill him. And he's so disheartened, so discouraged. He was so ready to go, and it's not going to happen. And then he just surrenders to that. And so then his life continues on. And then eventually, through different means, he was released from prison. And he was, uh, he was made his way to, was able to come to the U.S. And it's a long story. But what I want to say with that story is that he was a man who had joy in his relationship with God, regardless of circumstances. It did not matter what the circumstances were. For the psalmist, it didn't matter what the circumstances were. He kept on doing the right thing regardless of what he faced. And the ups and downs of the valleys and the hills of life, it didn't matter. 
Richard Wurmbrock was the same. The valleys, the ups and downs in life didn't matter. It made no difference. He was a servant of Jesus Christ and he was going to do what God called him to do, patiently striving, patiently serving, patiently waiting, and God saw him through. The story lives on today. I just want to ask us, what kind of a person am I? What kind of a person are you? Are you and I the people who have this joyful relationship with God? Or is that so conditional upon how the day goes and how the economy goes and how the family goes and how our health goes and you know, numerous things? They all shade and color and temper our joy. Is that it? That's wrong. You and I were made for joy. We're not made for ourselves. We're made to reflect God's image, serve Him, and enjoy His presence forever. And not until we get there will we find true meaning and purpose in life. That's our identity. All of us, we're social creatures. We need to be together reflecting God's glory as a body. And we do the best we can. But in the meantime, we face challenges. But those challenges should not condition our joy. May our desire always be to continue serving in that capacity. So this week, the coming days, we don't know what will come, what will happen. The world can, can get worse, can get better. But regardless, whether it gets worse or better, let's keep being faithful, speaking up for truth, loving people, showing mercy, doing what is right, being honest, living for God, reflecting His glory, and live in joy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this morning. Thank you for this time together as your children. And may we be people of joy. May we not be people of fear, of confusion, anxiety, worry, despair, Lord, may we be people of joy and contentment. And then, Lord, help us not to be afraid to do what's right, regardless of what people may say or do. Help us, Lord, to be honest, to be people of integrity, serving you joyfully with what you blessed us with, with the place you blessed us to be right here in our community. Thank you, Jesus, for this time together, and may you continue to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.